a movie came out in 1986 uh, that left an impression on me uh, that we all know <laughs> of as Top Gun. And, and I, you know, I, I can admit this now that I'm out because if I admitted this in a ready room when I was in the service, I'd probably be heckled for it. But, uh, but now that I'm out, I can safely say that, you know, that movie made a difference. And when you're 16 and you just get your driver's license and you're seeing this movie, um, it, yeah, it, it definitely made, left a mark, as we say. And uh, suddenly my, my 1976 Datsun was never fast enough or loud enough. And, and now I realize that Navy does some pretty cool flying. So I, I started shifting my focus on how do I get there? How do I do that? Isn't that and, so uh, many guys though? Cause I, like I've interviewed guys over the years who've been Navy SEALs and they'll say, yeah, the movie Navy SEALs, Charlie Sheen, yeah. it, it made me want to join. I mean, I, I, when you say you couldn't really say that in a room, I'm sure you'd be among a good company of guys who would say, yeah. yeah, influenced me as well. Well, I think we, you know, the, the deal was if you ever quoted Top Gun, a line from Top Gun in a ready room, then you had to throw like $20 in the fine jar to buy beer or the next port. So, you you know, so that way you just didn't want to talk about it for fear you'd be fined for saying like the need for speed or something. Battle Line Podcast, we have got an awesome show. You do not want to go anywhere. This guy right here, Brett Crozier, surf when you can, U.S. Navy captain, retired, uh, you want to talk about a book involving leadership. Plenty of people talk about leadership. This is a guy who truly put his career on the line. And, that, and that's what being a great leader is. If you're really willing to risk it all to lead during troubling times, that's exactly what Captain Brett Crozier did. You're not going to want to miss this great episode, great discussion with the captain. Um yeah, before we get to, to that interview, I do want to mention episode 192. We are coming very close to episode 200, which is remarkable. Uh, it's thanks to you guys giving us support over these past nearly four years at this point. Time flies. We've had some great discussions, and I appreciate any of you who are new listeners, old listeners. If this is your first episode, just, yeah, make sure you hit subscribe or that plus sign if you're on Apple Podcasts, um, wherever you're listening. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review. I mean, we've been top five in category before on Apple Podcasts, and it's been a long time at this point, truly because we're lacking in reviews. We get a lot of plays, but those reviews really help. So leave those um, and also leave in comments on, on YouTube. That really helps the algorithm. So show your support for us so that we can reach a wider audience and keep this thing going. Um, I should even point out there, if you want to support us, go to our uh, vault, battlelinepodcast.etsy.com, where we're doing limited edition runs of merchandise. Hopefully we'll be able to add more to that soon, but that's all up to you guys and the response that we get to what we have up there. So um, yeah, help us out over there. Help us out on the front of getting the show out to a mass audience. And uh, yeah, before we get to Captain Brett Crozier, with over 700 five-star customer views, Ned's Mellow Magnesium is an instant hit. Nourish your entire body with Ned's proprietary super blend with three forms of chelated magnesium, GABA, L-theanine, and over 70 trace minerals. It propels memory, mood, brain function, stress response, nerve and muscle health, and sleep. And about 75% of Americans are deficient in it. Ned's Mellow Magnesium is now available on Amazon, but you'll get the best deal through us as a first-time customer when you go to helloned.com slash battleline. One of my favorite products from Ned has to be the Brain Blend. 
they have the best CBD out there. I mean, if you're looking for just like discount CBD made in China, I would say go to your local gas station and good luck. But Ned is a premium product because it's made in the USA and all of their stuff is lab tested, third party tested. Um, if you're looking for something, you know, that that's less on your budget, uh, you know, that's not, not going to cost as much. I would just say their lower dose uh, CBD, which you could find in there, the full spectrum hemp uh, daily blend is great, but all of their products are great. And as I just mentioned, mellow magnesium, magnesium is crucial in getting sleep. So check it out. Once again, it's helloned.com slash battleline to check out any of their products. And the website is great because whatever you're looking for, if you're looking to treat post-traumatic stress or you're looking to sleep better, um, you're just looking to relax, you're looking for something that's a nootropic that's going to help your brain function like the Brain Blend. It explains all of that right there on the site. Once again, that's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash battleline. Uh, now, on different topic from uh, from CBD, if you're looking for the best ammo out there, and I know we have so many hunters and shooters in the audience, if you haven't already gotten Fort Scott Munitions on your shelves for whether you're out shooting, hunting, just uh, at the range. I don't know what you're waiting for. Any of our listeners who have who have switched over to Fort Scott Munitions are glad that they did, and they know that if they're in a crucial situation, that's what they're going to need. So Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed-out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with every pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in every state, but you can get the best deal through us when you simply go to fsm.com, type in the promo code BATTLEON, one word, and you're going to get 15% off your order. Once again, that's fsm.com, promo code BATTLEON. People tag us all the time on Instagram when they pick up the ammo. Feel free to do so. We'll put it in our story um, yeah, at Battleline Podcast. Uh, you check out their Instagram, of course, on Fort Scott Munitions. Uh, yeah, so check it out, fsm.com, promo code Battleline. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. One other thing that I should point out to you guys, uh, you've been asking us for a while, when are you going to do another guest-free episode? They, they love the Q&A, and people sometimes have questions for me, often have questions for Chris, and you could just go right to uh, your email. Send us an email because we're going to be doing it next month, battlelinepodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us over an email. Any questions you have, if they're good, we'll include it in the show, and that's coming up next month. So uh, just do it now, battlelinepodcast at gmail.com. We love answering your questions, and we're looking forward to that episode. With that, though, this episode is Brett Crozier, and let's get right into it.
From Kansas City to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Which is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on, Battle Line Podcast, and on with me is Navy Captain, retired Navy Captain, Brett Crozier, author of Surf When You Can, which you can see in the background with him I have in front of me, and actually I've had this book for quite a few months because I just know what the whole process up until it gets released, it's being sent out to people, so I've had the honor of having this on my shelf for quite a while, but it is finally out this month and people should pick it up and it's great to finally have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Really happy to be here and looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot to speak about. I mean, one of the things is like the subtitle of the book, how it's lessons in life, loyalty and leadership from a maverick Navy captain. And I feel like that maverick title we can get into in a little bit because of the fact that people may not necessarily know your name, but you were in the news for quite a while, just a couple of years back. And which led to you no longer being in the Navy and you doing what you're doing now. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get into that in, in a little bit because a lot of people had comments about that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Did you ever have plans to release a book or anything like that? Or did it all just happen at no. once as you suddenly had to leave the Navy? Yeah. You know, I, even after the the TR episode, which is kind of where I think most people became familiar with my name and that event. Um, you know, I served two more years after that. I, um, you know, I continued, I came back to San Diego. The Navy actually took really good care of me. I had a great job. I kept flying fighters up until the month I retired. Um, you know, my, my oldest son's a veteran, my, my middle son just commissioned last summer, actually. So it's kind of a family business for us. And so, you know, I, I knew that if I ever was going to write a book that I wanted to make it sure it was a very positive book about, book about all the amazing, you know, things I learned and all the people that I met and all the adventures I had in the 30 years. So I like to think I, it's taken me 30 years to write the book um, because I had all that experience I wanted to capture, but I probably in the last year plus have probably put some serious thought and, and just, you know, just kind of started. I mean, that's the, the secret to writing a book for anybody, whether you're an author or not, is just get started, you know, and how you, it's like throwing clay on a potter's wheel, just get some clay on there, start writing, start thinking, you know, and then I think in the end, you'll look back and go, yeah, either it's good or not and, and get help along the way. I mean, there's plenty of, folks out there editors and folks that do this all the time and and they're a great sounding board so don't you know don't be afraid to ask for help or get people's opinion i guess is the right way because you know most people don't write books uh, or get a chance to so uh, but I, it's, it was a fun process and really a fun way for me to reflect on an amazing career i mean personally all the things i learned and and things i wanted to share and i also wanted to you know not only share that stuff i wanted to be clear with folks that only knew me from the tr episode on the roosevelt that I had no bitterness. I mean, and we can talk more about that today, but you know, I, I was not bitter. I mean, people made the best decisions they could, myself included, with the information they had. And and I don't fault those that had 
a difference of opinion with me on how to handle the situation. At the end of the day, I knew in that, in that case that I was doing what I knew was right as a leader to take care of my folks. And I knew no one else was going to have that as their number one interest. And, you know, so I stand by what 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 I did and, and the decisions I made. But I'm okay with others that had to make decisions at a higher level. And that's just kind of how big organizations work and how our government works. And, and that's, you know, the idea is you just make the best decision you can and you accept when people disagree and, and you move on smartly and, and life is too short to be bitter or angry. And, and I hope in the book it comes across that, there is no bitterness. It was an honor to serve for 30 years and I, and I have no regrets. Yeah. And, and I feel like with the book beyond just your experience in the military, the thing that I get out of it is, so there's a chapter in the book called surf when you can beyond yeah. just being the title and stuff like that. I actually think could connect to myself. I mean, I've had a career the past 10 years speaking with special operations, military veterans and working with military veterans previously with soft rep. And then doing this show with Chris Peranto, who's you know not here today because he does a lot of speaking engagements. But I'm not a veteran. Sometimes people think that I am because I've just done all these podcasts, yeah. but I'm not. But there's stuff that's like transferable skills you put in here that someone like me could take out of it. Because the chapter surf when you can in particular, it's that whole thing about balance. It's, hey, this is, this is my hobby. And while I'm really being able to enjoy something that I put my passion into that's not my work, it actually reflects better on my work because I have that balance in my life. I feel the same way when I'm when I'm working out or or, or yeah. when I'm running regularly and when I'm not doing that because I've been, I actually was just speaking to you before we uh, hit record and everything that I had a couple of months where I was living at my parents' house in the process of like moving out of this Connecticut apartment, moving back into there, then moving all the stuff into this apartment. Yeah. You don't you it, just with work, you don't really get the time to work out, you don't really yeah. get the time to run and I noticed for me mentally I'm not the same. And yeah. my energy levels are not the same. And I think having that balance in your life is crucial, whether you're a military veteran or just a civilian who works a desk job. Yeah, and that's and that's really the hope, right? All the lessons that I try to talk about, you know, are transferable to anybody out there, whether you're 13 and trying to figure out what to do in life or you run a company or you're just, you know, you're home taking care of the kids. I mean, I think these are lessons that are relatable. And, and to your point, yeah, I like to surf. It's, it's a fun hobby for me. It's a great way to to put your phone down on the beach and get out there on the water and not be distracted and be able to, you know, not only get a workout in and, and enjoy nature, but also kind of think and strategically big thoughts. But, but to me, it's a life work balance. And, and I know like you, if I get up early and I go surfing and it's a good day, I will, I will work better. I will lead better at work. I will just be in a better frame of mind. I can make better decisions. You know, the days that I feel like I'm running late, I go in early, I'm just drinking coffee. And I'm just trying to answer emails all day or jump from meeting to meeting. I don't know that I'm that effective. I mean, I can certainly get stuff done, but I don't think I'm making the right decisions as a leader or able to make you know, the best decisions I can, no matter what your level. So I'm a big believer in life work balance. I always have been. I've tried to find the opportunity, even in the military, even on Navy ship, I was very you know protective of my time to say, I need to have an hour to work out every day. And if I don't, I get a little antsy and, and folks that work for me or help me manage my schedule. They got to know me pretty well. And they're like, all right, Captain has not worked out today. We need to get some time on his schedule to work out or he's going to be cranky. Um, and that, you know, I also like to think, you know, at the end of the day, when we're all looking back on life, you know, it's uh, what I call the rocking chair test. You're never going to wish you worked harder. You're never going to wish you made more money. You're going to probably wish you spent more time with family, maybe travel. And if you're a surfer, you're going to wish you surf more or whatever that is. And those are important things I think that are beyond work. And I, when I say life work balance, I say it in that order, you know, it's life first for me, because I think that in the end of the day, that's really what matters. And I think makes you stronger. And I think, and again, you're going to work harder as a result or work more effectively as a result, I think is the right way to phrase it. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a huge uh, issue that we have, you know, in this country in particular, is that sometimes every day is just that constant grind of working. Yeah. And you have no life balance with that. I actually see it a lot more here now that I'm in New York. I know that like when I go, it's Connecticut is the same thing, but when I go to like South yeah. Florida and stuff like that, or maybe it's the same where you are in California in the West Coast, I don't know as well. But there are places where people kind of prioritize that having an enjoyable life over, you know, keeping up with everyone else and and having that extravagant yeah. uh, bank account or something like that. It, it, it's less important to them. And I, I think it is important to just have have that in, in your life, because if you're just working every day and, and just striving towards that next goal and you have no other outlet, you're going to burn out. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You're right. I live in California. So the advantage is most days we have this this great sunshine to help remind you. So, you know, whenever you're heading into work, you see this great sunny day, you're like, okay, as a reminder, I need to spend time out of the office today. Um, and But you're right. There are places, there's times when you see that that's the culture, work as hard as you can, you know, work as long as you can. And that just cannot be good for you. I mean, I know it's not, I've, I've been there myself. I've done it at times too. And don't get me wrong. There's times for all of us when you have to really you yes. know, grind on something. It could be combat operations. It could be a big merger with a company. It could, you know, there's all kinds of things. Um, where you don't have the luxury, I get it. But when you do, you can get that balance. You better do all you can to harness that. And and again, not only that, but if it's physical, then it helps you stay in shape and stay healthy. So when you are actually done and the work is behind you and you're in your 60s or 70s, you can still enjoy life. And you're not you know, now suddenly dealing with physical ailments that you've ignored or trying to get in shape for the first time when you're 65. That's not a recipe for success. And, and I don't want, you know, I don't think any of us, particularly when you come from special forces or the military, I think a lot of us know that, you know, we, we work hard anyways, but the better shape you are, the healthier you are, I think the longer and more productive you're going to be. And I think that's, those are great skills that relate to anybody, um, military or not. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I enjoy surfing, I always feel like I'm going to stay healthier longer. And, and, and you most likely will. Um, what I, what I want to get into for sure is actually just your background, because you were saying how your own children are in the military. So how did how did you get in the military? I know you cover a lot of this in the book, for, but for people wondering, did you have uh, parents or family members who were in the military? What what attracted you to what you you know went on to do as serving the country? Yeah, so I had a grandfather. Both grandfathers served in the military. Uh, on my mother's side, he was in the Navy and and had his, he used to tell these crazy stories of World War II in the Pacific, and uh, and he would embellish quite a bit. But I remember as a kid, those being very. Uh, very monumental and you know pictures of him in the uh, island in the pacific with a gun in hand was always as a young kid you're just amazed by it and then my dad served in the air force after rotc uh he went to san diego state went into air force as an officer and then we were stationed in nellis air force base which is you know it's where the thunderbirds are based most of the year there's a lot of fighters there outside of las vegas so that was and kind of by where the way, thunderbirds man amazing yeah those not as good as the blue angels but really, I, I'd like to get into that, but keep going. Keep going. <laughs> the uh, I just might be biased. It might be parochial. <laughs> um, but I like to think that's when the seed was planted. I, I just as a young kid, you have these airplanes that are loud and fast and flying oh, yeah. over your head. And and uh, we'd be out like playing in the desert fields outside of Vegas. And and you just saw that. And we're like, oh, that looks pretty cool. That would be pretty fun to do. And it planted a seed and I just always loved aviation. I didn't know how to do it yet. I just kind of went through life. And my dad only did four years and then we moved up to, to Northern California. But in the back of my mind, it's what I always wanted to do. I knew it would be exciting. I knew I'd see the world. Um, 
but that's about where my knowledge of it's uh, you know really went. And I, and I started looking at like you know when I got to fifteen or sixteen, I started trying to figure out is that Air Force Academy or do I just you know how do I do that? And then a movie came out in nineteen eighty six uh, that left an impression on me uh, that we all know <laughs> was Top Gun, and and I you know I, I can admit this now that I'm out because if I admitted this in a ready room when I'm in the service, I'd probably be heckled for it. But uh, but now that I'm out, I can safely say that you know that movie made a difference and. When you're 16 and you just get your driver's license and you're seeing this movie, um, it yeah, it, it definitely made, left a mark, as we say. And uh, suddenly, my my 1976 Datsun was never fast enough or loud enough, and and now I realize that Navy does some pretty cool flying. So I, I started shifting my focus on how do I get there? How do I do that? Isn't that and, so uh, many guys though? Because like I've interviewed guys over the years who've been Navy SEALs, and they'll say, yeah, the movie Navy SEALs, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. It it made me want to join. I mean, I, I when you say you couldn't really say that in a room, I'm sure you'd be among a good company of guys Absolutely. who would say, yeah. "Yeah, influenced me as well." Well, I think we, you know, the the deal was if you ever quoted Top Gun, a line from Top Gun in a ready room, then you had to throw like twenty dollars in the fine jar to buy beer at the next port. So you, you know, so that way you just didn't want to talk about it for fear you'd be fined for saying like the need for speed or something, and uh, and being heckled. And so, yeah, there I am now, 16, and I feel like I now have a clear direction and what I want to do. And and um, I, again, I would have gone right to flight school. I mean, I just would have said, "All right, see ya. I'm going to skip high school and I'm going to skip college." And uh, luckily, I had folks that were smarter than me that said, "You know, actually, there's a path to get there." And, uh, my parents connected me with a blue and gold officer and and told me the importance of going to college. So that steered me towards the Naval Academy. And uh, went there and just, you know, tolerated that just so I could get to flight school a couple years later. And then I ended up there in Pensacola. uh... Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and so I started and I started flying helicopters, and I flew helicopters uh, out of flight school for ten years and loved it. Flew out of San Diego, a good portion of that was in Hawaii. And let me tell you, you know, if you're going to fly helicopters in the Navy, fly out of Hawaii. It's gorgeous. It's you know, you're flying around the islands, you're chasing the tour helicopters. People pay hundreds of dollars to do that, and every day we'd fly around the islands and do our mission, and then and then check out the surf report and then see what the surf was like. And then we would deploy as well all over the world, but. Um, really loved it. Loved, you know, as always, your first tour, as they say in the military, is where you make some friendships that'll never go away. And I still keep in touch with many of my squatter mates and see them regularly here in San Diego. And and then, um, but a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to apply to transition to something different. So I, uh, in this case, fighters. And the Navy has a program where it allows you to ship from one community to another. You have to apply, you have to look at your resume. And then um, I was picked up to go fly fighters. So I went back to flight school and 
now picked up the jet portion of flight school and went through this training to learn how to fly the F-18 and finished flying the F-18 right around when 9-11 happened. So unbeknownst to me that we were about to go into almost two decades of combat operations. And I just, you know, transitioned into the F-18 and then, you know, into naval aviation that would be well used for 20 years and found myself doing multiple combat deployments off of aircraft carriers in Iraq, particularly, and uh, and loved all of that. I loved everything about flying fighters. It was everything I wanted it to be. Still like flying helicopters. And, and my call sign, of course, helicopter community at the time didn't have call signs. But when I got to the fighter community, they said, we never want you to forget where you came from. So my call sign became Chopper, and uh, which is, you know, synonymous for flying helicopters or choppers and uh, went on and flew fighters for, you know, up to 10 plus years. Up, Really, I flew fighters up until the month I retired in 2022, in fact, and even flew helicopters at the end as well. So it was pretty fun to be able to fly both of those and uh, both as an instructor in the end and just for fun and, and did that. I had like a last flight where I flew a helicopter up to the top of the Sierras and then the next day I flew a fighter around the Bay Area and around the Sierras and ended my flying career in the Navy back in March of 2022 when I and then retired shortly thereafter. So I've got to ask about a comment that you made earlier when you said maybe you're biased about the Blue Angels being better than the Air Force Thunderbirds. So I, I live, as I said, on Long Island. Every year they have the Jones Beach Memorial Day Air Show. It's either the Blue Angels or the Air Force Thunderbirds. They switch off year by year here. So I just saw the Air Force Thunderbirds last year. Yeah. I saw the Blue Angels. And I was actually having that conversation with my dad. And it's who I went with. And truthfully... I'm just so in awe of what they do that I really feel like I couldn't tell you who is better. I couldn't <laughs> tell you what's even the difference because it's kind of a year apart. I don't see them back to back. I don't see what they're doing differently. Yeah. I just know that no matter who's flying every year, I am just in amazement. And I always tell yeah. people go out to an airport, uh, to an air show by you, whether it's the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels, but you could speak to this a lot more. Like what really is the difference? I know you're saying part of, your yeah. bias is being in the Navy, but what, what are the differences that someone like me doesn't even notice? Yeah. So to your credit, you, you don't notice a difference and they, they both train very in similar fashion. And even though I flew F-18s for 20 plus years, I still watch what they do in awe, like the ability to fly in close formation and do aerobatics. It is, it is impressive. And, you know, when I fly that, you know, we do a lot of formation flying in the Navy and you can get pretty close to other airplanes, but to see them do that, all the time and do these maneuvers. I'm I, even now I'm in awe and they're buddies in case these cases they're buddies of mine that went that path and did that for a tour. But you know, it, it comes down to when you're disciplined about your training and you practice over and over again, you get pretty good at it. So I still watch them and go, my goodness, they're close. Or you know, man, how yeah. how do they keep the timing together? And that's what I do for a living. So it's not like it's smoke and mirrors. But I think they're all I think I do. I think they're they're equivalent. They're the same in most regards. Different airplanes obviously. I always like to think that, you know, the F-18 I know can land on an aircraft carrier if they had to. So all those, all the folks flying F-18s and the Blue Angels are, are carrier pilots, um, which gives them just a little smidgen above because they can land on a carrier. But, but they're, you know, the Air Force pilots are as good. Uh, they're, they're all phenomenal in their own right. And you're absolutely right. You know, don't hesitate. If you've never seen the Blue Angels or Thunderbirds, go find a way to see them because it's inspiring. Not only to see what the pilots can do, but how professional they are how precise they are and and really just to understand these incredible machines that are built by American ingenuity and the system that creates incredible I mean these are phenomenal airplanes that can do incredible things and I'm always impressed not only by the folks flying it but thinking about all the people 
that were involved to build them and design those airplanes. And that's, that's, I've never lost that fascination with airplanes from when I was a little kid watching, you know, the F4s, Air Force F4s back in Nellis Air Force Base, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. How far apart are they really? Because I'm looking from the boardwalk and they look like they're right next to each other. Although I, it's hard to tell because it's, it's yeah. far away. How, how, when they do those close formations, how far apart is it? I mean, you're talking just a couple feet in some cases inches it's it really is about as close as it seems and uh, i've you know i haven't ever had a chance to fly with them uh, like sometimes you can jump in the back seat but um but it's pretty darn close and and again it's fast they're loud you know it's a weird but they when you practice and you do things over and over again you take these incredible pilots to begin with and then you train them as well as they do and they're so diligent about their training and how they practice and how they and then they're i think it's an important point and i try to even talk about it in my book there's no perfect mission, right? They do these, they do the same events over and over and over again. And every time they come back, they still debrief every single event and every, in, in fine, you know, detail um, because they never want to miss a learning opportunity and they never pretend there's such thing as perfection. I mean, you know, they're striving to be perfect and they're, and they know they'll never achieve perfection, but it's that effort to try to strive to that and always being humble enough to learn along the way that'll get them to where they are. And I think that's a lesson for anybody, no matter what your profession is, right? You know, your goal is to always strive to get better. And if you're humble enough and you're open to criticism and you don't, you know, where your rank in the, in the debrief, as we say in the military, you can learn a lot of stuff and you'll get better. And I think, you know, I, I think we see in society, people get to a level and they try to like relax and assume they're experts mm -hmm. and they don't have to learn anymore. I think that's, that's a fool's, you know, fool's path. Um, I think, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong and you're even in doing podcasts, whatever your other job is, you've got to be willing to learn. You've got to be willing to critique yourself. And, uh, oh, yeah. and if you do that and you're humble enough and, and you don't take offense, well, that's what makes you better. That's how you can get smarter and you can, you know, and, and enjoy it. So. Yeah. No, no matter what, when I go back and listen to these shows, there's always something I should have done this better. I should have, right. I should have said like every two seconds, I shouldn't have said, um, and you, and, and you have to be critical of yourself to be great at anything. I think I, I, I fully agree with that. But yeah, I, I love watching those air shows. It is amazing to get some more insight into what's actually done there. And I agree, if people have never been out to a to air show, they have to see it because it is inspiring in your own life. And the thing that that's crazy to me when you talk about the practice that goes into these air shows, I couldn't imagine the practice involved in getting to that level. Because once you're at that level, there probably is some autopilot that you're on you know not not say actual autopilot but your brain is yeah. on a little bit of autopilot but i couldn't imagine getting to that level the amount of fear and adrenaline of getting that close to another plane for the first couple of times where yeah. you could die at any moment yeah i mean you're talking you know 50 60 000 plane airplanes you're going 300 to 500 knots and you're you know mere inches which means you can't even is you can't even think about moving the controls right you're not like it's it's instinctual in many regards and yeah the, but you're right the first couple of times that's it's that same but that adrenaline obviously helps you in many ways too right that it's not fear it's just a heightened sense of awareness because you're doing something for the first time which leads to kind of an adrenaline rush which gives you that heightened sense of awareness and then that allows you to train and learn better i think you know anyone that operates in this kind of realm whether it's special forces or tactical aviation you know you harness that you want to push yourself you want that kind of adrenaline rush as it is because you know that man when that happens you're going to be super alert and you're also going to learn a lot and see things going on and and it's probably you know it's when you get complacent right and when you get to like ah this is not a big deal i've done it a hundred times 
well, man, I can tell you, I've done things a hundred times. And when I get super complacent, it's that hundred and first time that I'm going to do something stupid, they could have tragic consequences because nothing changes. The physics don't change. You know, the risk doesn't change. Um, you know, you've got to remain that barrier and kind of keep your height and senses. So we always talk about, you know, focus on the basics, you know, and it's because at the end of the day, most in aviation, right? Most of your mishaps are oftentimes just in your takeoff and landing phase or the admin phase and think it's, it's not the complex dogfighting. It's not the high-end tactical fights where you're in, the, you know, you're in combat trying to drop ordnance on a, in a enemy bunker. It's really the basic times, um, taxiing to take off or taking off or landing. And it's those moments when you're like, I've done this a thousand times and you start disengaging. Well, man, that is when it's not just Murphy's law. It's when you've, you were going to stop doing the things you've been doing um, because you're just, you know, you discounting them. So we try to be, you know, for every, as an example, for every hour and a half mission in an F-18, we'll probably debrief for, you know, two to three hours. And we spend time talking about the admin, the taxi and the takeoff, the formation flying. And we never skip over that because it's an important thing to remind yourself. And then we get into the, the tactical portion. But, you know, for those that don't think about it, I mean, we, you see the movies like Maverick and stuff. You know, what you don't get to see are these, I mean, you see a little bit actually Maverick, but what you don't often see is, you know, the preparation and brief that goes into that flight. So maybe three to four hours or longer, a really quick hour and a half flight, and then three to four hours on the back end debriefing, you know, like we talked about earlier. So it's, what's that ratio, you know, like one to two. So for every hour, actually one, one to four. So for every hour of flight, you know, you're going to have four hours of, you know, debrief or brief. And that's, that tells you why you have to spend that time to think about it and get yourself next level and never let your guard down and always focus on, on those basic things. And, you know, it's, that's how those blue angels, Thunderbirds back to the start of this, that's how they get good because they do, they spend so much time focusing on what many would think are basic maneuvers. Um, but they, you know, they do it every time and they're good and they look great. Oh yeah. Well, so back to your military career, uh, what was the process involved in achieving the rank of captain where, where you went from there? Cause we kind of spoke about your early military career. How did it get to that point of your, your highest rank before you left? Yeah. So yeah, the Navy's got a system like all services where you promote it at certain intervals and time that you've been in the previous rank. So, you know, you're an ensign in the Navy, which is the bottom rank for two years. And then you become a Lieutenant JG and initially it's just based on, you know, we always say, okay, can you fog a mirror? You know, if you're, if you can still fog a mirror, I mean, you can still breathe while well, you're going to promote to the next rank. Um, and then, you know, as you get more senior, when you go from about Lieutenant, which is the O3 rank to Lieutenant commander, now you start looking at performance and you look at how well you've done. And I say, we, you know, the, the Navy looks at how well you've done and the tours you've had, what kind of diverse career path you've been on. And they recommend you for promotion. And with that becomes opportunities for more responsibility and higher, you know, higher accountability type jobs. And so you just, you know, you just kind of go through your career and it's, I'd argue it's more structured than most people on the corporate side, where it's, you know, you can ride, you can, you can get responsibility much quicker, right? You can be in a fortune 500 company. And if you're a whiz kid, you might find yourself very quickly getting to a very senior position. Um, or you can be, you know, a, a, an employee in a company where it's going to take you 30 years to move up to say mid-level manager. The Navy's probably somewhere in the middle. We have this kind of hierarchical system. That's not just based on the Department of Defense, it's actually codified in law and how people are promoted in the time they can be a certain rank. And that's that's there to make sure we maintain the proper force structure and the size. Uh, and then that's how much it costs, right? Manpower is a big expense for, for the government. And so, I, you know, there's, you can, some people certainly spend a lot of time thinking about the career. What's the next milestone? How do we get the job I need to, to move on? 
I, I tried never to worry about that. I mean, I think I certainly paid attention to it. Um, I just tried to make sure I had fun in the job I had and make sure I could do the best I could in whatever job that was. And I, at the end of the day, if you're having fun, you're generally going to do well. And if you're doing well and leading well, then you're going to be recognized. Your, your team's going to do well. And if your team does well, then you're going to obviously, that's going to reflect on your career and that's going to give you more opportunities. So, you know, my path was such that I went through helicopters and then fighters did decent, as they say, you know, through my career path and then got mm -hmm. to command of a squadron. And at about the 20 year mark, I had, you know, I had just finished my command tour where I was the commanding officer, the CEO in charge of a, you know, 12, 12 uh, plane squadron with about 250 people. So you're doing all the maintenance, logistics, all the pilots, all the training are part of that. And then we would deploy all over the world. That, that then now is a commander and then you're looked at for the next rank, which would be captain. So again, you kind of continue to promote up as long as you're having fun, you're doing well and, and you want to. I mean, some people kind of do five, 10 years, like, yeah, I'm gonna do something different, which is fine sure. too. And, and so that led me to that tour. And then I did a tour overseas and I realized how much I loved naval aviation and how much I wanted to be part of that at a different level. And so I put in for the, uh, what, we, what we call the nuclear power program to then go ultimately to command an aircraft carrier. And uh, and we call it that because by law to be the commanding officer of a nuclear powered aircraft carrier, you have to go through nuclear power school, the Navy's school. And you also have to be an aviator. So we don't put non-pilots or, or navigators in charge of aircraft carriers. It has to, we do, I mean, they we don't put like say a, a ship driver or a submarine officer in charge, only pilots or navigators and you know, NFOs are put in charge of carriers. So. You go to nuke school for two years. And so now another, really another career transition for me. I'm, you know, been in the Navy 20 years and suddenly I'm in class learning about chemistry and reactor engineering and physics and thermodynamics, things I hadn't really thought about in about 20 years since I left college. So it was, uh, it was a good transition and a good way. I mean, your brain's a muscle, so you have to just kind of get smart again and start studying in a way you haven't really looked at it, things. And, um, and you're in class with, you know, 22 year old, 25 year old junior officers who could be fresh out of like college with engineering degrees. And here I am, you know, 20 years, their senior and trying to turn the calculator on, as I joked about um, <laughs> in, the, in the back of the class, trying to figure out what are we talking about and trying to catch up with. And then that's, that gives you the training you need to go on to be the, the XO or the deputy of an aircraft carrier. You get another ship to learn how to drive big ships. So you get command of a ship and then the pinnacle is you're now in charge of a nuclear powered aircraft carrier with 5,000 people, which is, as I say, it's a nuclear powered floating city at sea with an airport on top. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's an awesome, awesome job, best job I've ever had. And, uh, and it's, and it's just an impressive, they've never been, on, no one's ever been, on, you know, if someone's listening has not been on an aircraft carrier, go find your nearest port that they have one, whereas it's the Langley or, the midway here in San Diego, it's just something neat to see just not only the, the building and the engineering that goes into creating one, but also just understanding that imagine putting 5,000 people on there and how they interact and how they operate. And it's, uh, it's pretty impressive. So yeah, so that's kind of the culmination of my career carrier command there, the theater Roosevelt. And, uh, but again, no better job. You'd fly a helicopter, fly a fighter, drive the ship i mean you're the ceo of the ship so you have a lot of flexibility and a lot of people you're responsible for but it was a fun job that i really really enjoyed and then uh, after that tour ended a little bit shortly I, I spent two more years in the navy until i retired but that was that's my quick quick bio <laughs>
Yeah, and, and and it's amazing. I I I'd like to get into what we spoke about uh, when we started the interview, the kind of infamous incident, and and I I would say why that word maverick is used in the subtitle of the book. So, um, I mean, you could speak to it more, but basically, at the height of uh, COVID nineteen, you're there, at, you're the captain of the ship. You don't like the way I guess people would say Big Navy is handling things. You pen a letter venting some of your frustrations and uh, i guess people would say the shit hits the fan from there yeah the um and it was interesting right like like the rest of the world we were trying to figure out what covid was you know what does it mean what's the true threat what's the risk the navy was no different i mean we were you know we were not ahead of anybody else we were just trying to figure it out the navy's a great learning organization i mean we learn pretty quickly but again no one really had heard about COVID until about a month prior. And suddenly we realized it's a big deal and it's really impacting the entire world. Um, so yeah, we don't, we don't, we didn't have 5,000 masks on the ship. You know, we didn't, we couldn't test like we can test now. You can go buy a bunch of tests at a drugstore. Um, and we didn't have, you know, vaccines were a, were a wish list on the wish list at that point. So we were dealing with it and we eventually, unfortunately, you know, we made some port calls. We were overseas on deployment and, um, we, we put some mitigation stuff in place to minimize the risk. But at some point we had a couple of sailors come down with COVID. And if you've ever been on a carrier, you know, it's about the worst environment ever to socially distant. Like you just, there is no such thing as six feet of separation here. Yeah. You know, you probably have six people within six feet in the sleeping quarters. So we, we were doing all we could. We had pulled pier side to Guam just because when you're operating at sea, you're focused on running the reactors or running the, the flight deck and all these things going on. So we got ourselves safely into Guam pier side. And then we could kind of focus more on what was going on. And we had anyone that had tested positive, we were able to get off the ship initially. But in that environment, we were seeing literally seeing an exponential growth. So you could be like, you know, 10 in the morning, 10 positive cases in the morning. And by the end of the day, we were at 100. And then, you know, you just watch this grow. And, and so you, you know, you think about that and compared to like, you know, states were shutting down for a mere 20 cases or 50 cases. And so we were watching this growth and we were seeing it exponentially play out. And, and again, on a carrier, it's a city. So I had a medical team. I had doctors. We actually flown in an epidemiology team from the Navy so we could track the virus and make sure we understood what's going on. Um, we still didn't have enough masks or gloves or all other stuff that we now know to be normal protocol. Um, and we were concerned. I mean, I was concerned because, you know, the question is, how are we going to stop this? And across the world, we were seeing about a 4.1% fatality rate. So every hundred people that get it, potentially four people could die from the, uh, the, you know, from the virus. Now we knew that, you know, your, your Navy demographic, the sailors on the ship are healthier than your average person. Um, they've, you know, they they work out more, they're healthier, they're screened. So yeah, we knew we weren't going to, yeah, we weren't going to see 4%. And so for planning, we said, okay, let's say worst case, it's 1%. Let's, let's say, let's make sure we're, we're not overreacting that it's 4%, but let's say 1%. That's a small number. Um, well, I mean, 1% of a hundred is one and 1% of a thousand is 10. The answer needs to be zero, right? You need to do all you can to make sure you get it to zero. And so we were, you know, that was our concern. And, and we were like everybody else, we were, we were trying to deal with the issues. We were trying to communicate up the chain of command. And I don't, I don't for a minute, I want to be clear for everybody. I don't for a minute think the Navy didn't want to take care of the sailors or they were being negligent. I think we were just trying to deal with the situation. It was the fog of war, as we say, because there's all this information that we were trying to feed up the chain. And there's all these people involved in the decision process. I mean, COVID wasn't just a, a Navy issue. It was a world issue. And the highest levels of the government at the executive branch were also involved. 
and having, you know, how to mitigate the risk and how to deal with this publicly and how we talk about it. So that creates an interesting dynamic because what we're seeing then on the front line is oftentimes not what is being conveyed all the way up to the decision makers back in DC, thousands and thousands of miles away. And, you know, for those that operate on the front lines and, you know, those that are trigger pullers, I mean, they see this all the time. We try, you, I would argue, you always want to try to give them the authority to do what they need to do to protect themselves. And so you always have the inherent right of self-defense. But, you know, if every time a soldier has to pull a trigger, he needs permission from thousands of miles away, well, that soldier is not very effective. So that's what we call the fog of war. And I, what we were trying to do, I, I say we being the, you know, the entire organization was trying to figure out what to do, how to do it. And we had a very deliberative planning process, but that is slow and cumbersome. And, we, you know, when we're talking people from all over the world, trying to get together for these meetings via Zoom and Teams and whatever else, that's problematic. So we were just, we just kept running into roadblocks. We kept running into things that were not it, it's, it's reacting as quickly as we needed to react. And so, you know, we looked at it and said, we've got to make sure it's very clear. You know, if it wasn't at the beginning and I own it, and I said this in my email at the beginning, Look, if I wasn't very clear about this risk and the impact on a carrier, then, then I own that. That's that's all me. But at this point, I don't care about that. You can hold me accountable for that, but I need to make sure it's very clear right now what we think the risk is and he, you know, the problem is and how we think we need to solve it. And at the time, it meant trying to figure out how to quarantine sailors and how to get them space they needed in CDC-compliant rooms. So some were going to be off base, and we were getting sailors off as quickly as we could. But we also knew that Guam had like 10,000 empty hotel rooms because they had shut down tourism a couple of weeks earlier. So, you know, we, we realized that was a very viable solution and, and really a cheap solution at the end of the day, because you're just talking hotel rooms and, and the fees for that, which with a DOD budget into the hundreds of billions of dollars, yes, nothing. You know, a couple million is nothing. So we thought that was the viable, not only the most viable, uh, it was certainly the quickest option. And ultimately it's what we did. But I think that what I, what I tried to convey in the email was not a sense of alarm, but a sense of reality. If we don't do something now, we're going to lose people. And that's, that is unacceptable in my book. So I think everybody wants what's best for the sailors. I just knew that as a CEO of the ship where leaders are need to be held accountable for what happens on their ship, no one wanted what was best for the sailors more than I did. And I just knew that then that meant I had to rock the boat, right? Not just to be the maverick, but just say, I'm willing to take the hit to my career or rock the boat in this case, to use the Navy term, just to make sure it's very clear and nothing is left on the table when it comes to solving this. And that's kind of what happened. Um, you know, it kind of broke through some of the logjam. It accelerated things that were already in motion. Discussions about hotels already be now became reality. And suddenly we're finding that we were getting, you know, we got what we needed. We got a lot of support. Um, we were getting the sailors off the ship very quickly. We were getting the hotel rooms. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if you could argue the email wasn't, alone wasn't didn't, you know what it took to do that but i think it helped accelerate the whole process and at least in the, the day i knew that i was being very clear of the risk and i was trying to make sure we took all the action we could and uh, and that's what we did we put them in hotel rooms they you know spent a couple of weeks as we got sailors quarantined and and you know healthy and the ship went back to sea you know about 6 6 weeks later which is exactly what we had planned and exactly what we executed and um but the downside was when the email leaked out publicly, I think the higher echelons of the government felt the need to react. How, because they if, were, I don't, if I could ask, yeah. how did it leak out? I, don't, I mean, I, so it, the email was sent on unclassified, and, and, and that is the medium we use for the medical court, right? The medical court doesn't have some of the more classified systems. But we were also peer side. So every sailor has a cell phone. Every sailor knew exactly what was going on on a ship. So 5,000 people, 5,000 cell phones. 
the fact that the email went out was I sent it to a real, I sent it to, you know, 10 people, you know, the three admirals that I knew pretty well and, and their staff. Um, so somewhere along the line, it just, I think it just leaked out. I think my guess is people had printed it out because they, they, you know, they wanted to talk about it at staff levels and then somehow someone then got it on. But, you know, and, and I think in the end they, they did it with good intent. They, they thought that, Hey, this is going to help get attention on the situation. And, and maybe it did, maybe it was the extra public attention that helped focus efforts at all levels, uh, even though obviously the, the ship rocked a little bit more as a result of that. And I think that was maybe why the SECNAV, Acting Secretary of Navy, decided to relieve me. Um, but, but I want to be clear, I'm okay with that. I mean, in those situations, you make the decision you think is best. And in my case, it was a conscious versus career decision. I knew that it was going to affect my career, but I knew as a leader, my, my only priority really is to take care of my guys, right, and my gals. You know, leaders take care of their people. And if you do that, you build the culture, you build the team, and you can do amazing things. So if I'm a if that's my belief as a leader, then suddenly when it matters, I'm not going to try to protect my career at their expense. So, you know, I sent the email on behalf of that. And and obviously there's people above that might disagree with that. And that's okay. I mean, it's okay to disagree, you know. And at the end of the day, if it costs you your job, it just costs you your job. But I think, you know, I feel like even today, if you know, I've been asked a lot, you know, would you do it again? I, yeah, I'd like to think I would. I mean, yeah, my beliefs haven't changed. And what, what did knowing, they want you to do, though? Did they want you to just keep these guys on a ship and pretend you were social distancing? Yeah, I think I think they just wanted me. I think that was probably initially what the thought was: just keep doing business as normal, and then we're going to find a solution. But you know, that was this like two to three week process, and at that point, we're going to see you know, four to 5,000 positive cases, you know, we, we still got up to 1200 positive cases. And people so also forget, you know, I, I remember this a little bit because New York was kind of earlier in getting hit with the pandemic than other states. Yeah. And people think of like this mutated lesser version of COVID-19 and they'll say, oh, it's basically a cold, which it was for a lot of yeah. people because by the time yeah. I got COVID, yeah. you know, like 2022, I guess, 2000, yeah. I, I mean, it was nothing. I was like tired for the day. And I remember I was like hungry and that was it. But right. early on is when we saw a lot of deaths when we didn't know how to handle it properly. So people do need to keep in mind, like time frame is everything on this. Early yeah. on, people are a little bit more understandably panicked. Yeah, I and mean, we did. I mean, even with the healthier crew on the ship, um, you know, we still had to intubate people. There are people still that were in ICU that were, you know, getting forced air in their lungs because they're they're lungs had shut down. So, you know, we, we did unfortunately lose a sailor. We lost, uh, GMC, you know, GMC Thacker, a gunner's mate chief. And, um, and I, you know, I, that happened shortly after I left the ship. And, you know, I, I think about that all the time because, um, you know, I, as, again, as a seal of the ship, you're ultimately accountable for what happens. And I think, you know, I look at, look back and go, man, it's, you know, how do you get to zero? And, but you also think about what could it have been if we didn't do anything and we just accepted the status quo and, and I wasn't willing to rock the boat. What did the numbers have been 10 to 15? I, I, we don't know. And I, and the reality is I didn't want to take the chance and I didn't, you know, didn't have enough confidence to think that it would have been zero just by doing status quo. So you know, yeah. I don't, that's why I say, you know, I say in all honesty, when I'm asked, would you do it again? And I, I'd say, yeah, I'd like to think I would. I mean, because my beliefs haven't changed and I think leadership's about taking care of people. And if you do that well, then you got to do that on the good days and the bad days and you can't change and, you know, take care of people when the sun's out and, and you're, you know, at the beach on Liberty, you got to take care of people also when, when it matters and, and uh, when there's real risk and threat to, to your folks. 
Yeah, and a lot of more high-profile people from the Navy had your back. I mean, if you Google your name or YouTube your name, I think the first thing that comes up is a guy who's been on the show, who's probably one of the most high-profile SEALs, Jack Carr, uh, spoke yeah. about it on his own, spoke about it on Joe Rogan. He's a guy who had a very long Navy military career, yeah. and he says that you did the right thing. And I think a lot of guys in the military community say that you felt that you, that you did the right thing and um, and didn't want to see you go. Yeah, and it's and I did. I got a lot of support. I mean, I got a lot of public support. Obviously, I got uh, you know a lot of family support, as you'd expect, and then a lot of you know professional support from across the fleet, which I found. And you know, I even wrote, reached out and said, you know what, we're dealing with the same problem. We appreciate you finally standing up and getting some attention on this because we were we they too were CEOs of ships or or submarines or squadrons and felt like if nothing happened that we were headed down this path where we were going to lose people. So, um, and, and to put it, I'll say it. I mean, you were the guy who had, who had the balls to do something. They maybe yeah. stood on the sidelines and felt the same way as you, but they didn't take action. Yeah. And I, you know, and you learn in, and many walks of life, right? Sometimes you, I, mean, I bias towards action, right? Like I just, it's hard to sit back and, and do nothing and hope. I mean, hope is not a strategy. So, I definitely biased towards action, trying to solve the problem, and uh, and and again, I think it, I think it made it had a positive impact, and and I, and I also again, remind, I'm not bitter about it. Like I was, you know, the book for those that read the book, and I hope people do. I, I found it a blast to write, and I hope they enjoy reading it as well. There's really only one chapter about the TR and the episode yeah. where, where they were yeah. talking about. Um, now things build to that, but but I, you know, even when I wrote the book and talked with the publisher. You know, I would, the book was not going to be a burn down the house book. It was going to be, you know, seven, eight, nine chapters of all these incredible experiences, all these positive things I learned and, and then kind of dovetail towards the end to the TR story. So it's not really a memoir. It's more just, you know, things I learned, you know, along yeah, the way. It's different lessons, different. Yeah. Yeah. Each chapter is kind of like a different, different lesson and, and different things that you've learned in, in your military career, I would say. Um, so I'm wondering the fact that your career did have to end abruptly and that you were in the Navy for so long, pretty much your whole, whole adult life. Did you have a plan in the back of your mind prior to this happening of like, what what's next for me at the end of my military career? Or or was there no plan? Was it just, I'm going to retire and that's it? Well, I knew I wouldn't just retire. Like I think even in today's era, even after 30 years in the military, if you're healthy and energetic, I mean, you realize you've got a lot of gas in the tank and there's a lot more you can do. Um, I didn't know exactly. You're right. I didn't, I didn't have a plan. Um, I knew I wanted to surf more. So the day after I retired, I surfed 30 days straight, like rain or nice. shine. Uh, and, and I felt like that's all I did. I surf. I'd have a, I'd go get a cool breakfast burrito from the local place in San Diego. And then I'd, you know, go surf again that evening. Um, you know, I could have done it the rest of my life. Although my wife would tell you that it's not a great way to make a living, particularly when you're, you know, you're a mediocre surfer. So I spent a lot of time. She, she had started a company about two years ago that employs military spouses and veterans doing remote IT work. And, uh, and I kind of helped her a little bit, although she doesn't need my help anymore. Uh, she's off doing great things. And I, you know, I, so I dabbled with the airlines a little bit. I, I, that was going to be the natural step for me to go into the airlines. Cause it's, it's a great, it's a highest paying part-time job as they joke, but, uh, but it's important work. And I, and I respect, you know, airline pilots and, and what they do and how safe they are. Um, and so I started on that path and I think, you know, through some family events that brought me back home for a little bit. Um, I, I kind of realized as much as I like flying, I mean, that was, that was the reason I joined the Navy was to fly. Um, I didn't stay to fly. I didn't stay for, you know, 30 years just to fly. So it became, it felt, 
I kind of recognize here I am about to endeavor on another career path flying. And what's great about being an airline pilot is you fly. What's not great is you don't have the same kind of camaraderie and teamwork. You're always kind of paired up with different pilots and different, you know, flight attendants. So you just don't have the same sense of teamwork. And, and I, what I realized I liked about the military more than anything was being part of a team. So I, I kind of broadened my search a little bit and, and then uh, some folks reached out and said, Hey, We've got a large nonprofit here in San Diego that could really use your operational expertise. Uh, it's focused on helping homeless veterans and veterans that struggle with drug abuse and mental health stuff. And then veteran families that have economic challenges. And it's been around about 40 years. And I, so I came in there and just started learning the new business of, of the nonprofit world, which is a challenge in itself. And then taking care of how to take care of veterans. And we serve about 3000 veterans or their families every year. So very similar to the military, it's a mission-based organization, right? We're folk, you don't, you don't go nonprofits to get rich. Like we don't have a company jet, uh, you know, where you don't pay people nearly what they deserve for really hard work. And, um, but it's, but it can be inspiring when you surround yourself with people that are all about a mission and taking care of people, which is very similar to the military. So, so now I'm in a nonprofit doing that. I don't, do, I don't do you want to plug, do. plug what it is along with your wife's company or? Well, yeah. So it's I, I work with Veterans Village of San Diego, uh, there in San Diego, which is takes care of veterans in, in Southern California. And then my wife's company is called Client Cloud Care, and they do IT. In fact, they do IT database management for nonprofits. Um, so she's a for-profit company, hires military spouses with IT kind of credentials, and then gets them employed, and they do remote work. It's it's phenomenal. It's fun to watch this grow, and and she's CEO founder. And watching, you know, the whole startup mentality, what that means. And for those out there that want to start a company, it's inspiring to see her after 30 years of bouncing around and 20 different moves throughout her career to now kind of give you to go all in on something she's passionate about, helping people, you know, helping employ military spouses. And um, But it's a lot of work. It's like, it's just like you think a startup would be. And she's on year two and they've had tremendous growth, but it's a, it's a lot of work to, and it's nonstop. So that's, so now I kind of, I try to make sure I'm home to make dinner. Uh, I try to make sure that I'm there to do more. But um, yeah, but I, but I enjoy it. I don't know. If that's what I'll do forever in the nonprofit world. I think it's, it's been fun. I've learned a lot. Maybe I'll, maybe I'm going to, you know, I'll go to another nonprofit. I, I think I don't, you know, you do one thing for 30 years, so to speak, even as varied as my career, you get now reluctant to say, I don't want to commit to one thing for 10 years. Like I like, I like the flexibility for anybody yeah. transitioned from the military can be daunting and scary but I also think you'll find it liberating, you know, for those out there, their listeners, the ability to decide what you do, where you live, what you, that's for the first time, maybe in a long time, you have some freedom you've never had before. So, so embrace the unknown, as we say, and uh, enjoy that and, and avoid just trying to jump right back into a full-time, you know, 40 hour week job that you're not excited yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. And and speaking of the moving, I mean, despite that you can live wherever you want, it sounds like San Diego is home. That's that's where you want to be. I think so. We're we've only we've we in a house we've been in now for a year. Um, certainly the weather's generally good, surf is pretty good. My youngest son goes to college in San Diego, so it's nice to be uh, near him. But yeah, ask me in a year. Like after two years, I'll lie with it say, golly, we've been here a long time. We need to go move somewhere else. So we'll see but where it, that uh, takes Unless us. I have this wrong, this is where you've been, though, for a while, right? With Navy career to now. Yeah, we spent, I was the XO on the Reagan out of San Diego and then went through training again, went out to Japan for a couple of years and then back to San Diego. So we've probably been in and out of San Diego now for, for 10 years, about, yeah, about so. seven but, to 10 years we've been in San Diego. 
It's not that's not where you're from, though. No, I'm up. I'm up for the Bay Area, so up north of San Francisco. In a okay, town but still Santa California. Rosa. Like you still know, California. you're not you're not looking yeah. to move to Texas or Florida like a lot of people. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't. We're just as long as there's near the water and maybe a break somewhere near that I can surf, then I'll I think I'll go and explore. Yeah, I don't surf, but I will say being by the water is. I'm not right by the water, but the fact yeah. that I can drive 45 minutes to a beach. As I said, I was living in Connecticut for a year, and those are like not real beaches. Long Island right. has real beaches. The only difference is we only get to enjoy them for like four months out of the year, if that. You know, yeah. the rest the rest of the year, you're not spending time there. That's why I love going to South Florida and all that. I've always spoke about moving there, but same thing for you. I value family. I mean, I don't I yeah. don't have kids or any of that, or I'm not, I'm not married, but my my parents are one town away. My friends I grew up with, many of them are still here, so. I, I do get that, but um, yeah, getting in, into um, after you did leave and and doing the nonprofits and all that, did while you were in the Navy or or even as a kid or any of that, did you ever aspire to write a book? Because so many people now, it was kind of unheard of. I feel like yeah. in the eighties and nineties, of course, you had Dick Marcinko and like the old school guys who did write books, but up until like OIF and GWAT, you really didn't have military veterans writing books and now it's right. you know this ongoing joke that every navy seal writes a book that's obviously yeah. not, not the truth yeah. because there's so many navy seals we just hear right. about a lot of them who write books but was was that a goal of yours in life did it just fall on your lap no in fact i was a math major in college and and you know even when i got my master's and i had to write these longer thesis stuff it was always a chore um i like storytelling and i love reading like i just grew up always reading adventure books i remember reading Archinko's books when I was younger and books about flying helicopters or fighters and, you know, Fly the Intruder was a memorable book for me. So I always like reading and I always um, like storytelling. And then I think I always, maybe I always thought, one, I didn't have the time in the military, you don't have a lot of free time. So I never really even took pen to paper to, to, you know, I wasn't someone that kept a diary or anything. I just always, you know, told stories that I thought were entertaining, remembered stories that I always thought were worth sharing. And, and then so when I kind of got near the end of my career and I had more free time suddenly and, and said, well, I wonder what this would look like. And, and started just, you know, like they say, you kind of just throw the clay on a potter's wheel and you start. And, and I think the hardest part for anybody is is just getting started because you have this expectation. You're going to sit down and go, you know, four score and seven years ago and you're going to write this <laughs> perfect narrative. And that is not how it works. I mean, you just need to start throwing words on the paper. And some days you might write a sentence. Some days you might write pages. Um and as long as you're making progress and as long as you're willing to take feedback too, which means, Hey, honey, read this chapter. What do you think? Or, you know, you bounce it off friends and, and, uh, and, and you've got to be pretty thick skin. Cause if you think, you know, if you're afraid of getting up someone's opinion on your book, well, you're, you're probably going to struggle because you need that to get it. I think to write a good book, you need feedback along the way. And I've had plenty of feedback and I bounce stuff I've written off, you know, dozens of people that I that do it professionally or friends of friends. And, and that's been very valuable to me. So I, I like it. I think, you know, I think to the point about veterans now writing books, I mean, I think we're like 6% of society right now is either serving or has served. I mean, it's a small, you know, one single digit percentage of America right now. And you think about World War II generation that are fading away, Vietnam generation is getting old and our, and our force, the military force is shrinking. Um, so when you look at, you know, what are we, 350 million as a society in America today, you know, less than 10% of them have ever served in the military. Uh, or are serving currently. But there's so many amazing things that take place in the military every day. I think there's a lot of lessons there and things you can learn from. And uh, and I, 
you know, we have all these influencers and folks who take advantage of social media to just talk about styles and stuff like that or viral videos. And those are entertaining, don't get me wrong. But when you think about somebody who's been in a military career for 10, 20 years, whether they're SEALs or submariners or whatever the case may be, or a pilot, like in my case, you've got some pretty cool stories. And if you yeah. take the time to write them in a way that's relatable to the broad audience, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's you're going to touch some of the 350 million in a way that they'll learn from it and appreciate. And that will be appreciate allows you to thank maybe like I try to do all the men and women I served with. And maybe those same lessons that I'm sharing will make those that have never served a day, you know, learn something, of, you know, that we, you know, that we use. And I, every chapter that I wrote has a title, like focus on the closest alligator or pull like a Clydesdale. And these are just lessons that I apply to military and civilian world. And uh, so I applaud anybody, especially as a veteran. I think you have a lot to say, anyone. And, uh, and I would encourage them to try to share it in some way. And it could just be telling cool stories at the bar, or it could be podcasts, or it could be, you know, writing. But uh, all, all are yeah. great venues to do that. And, uh, and I highly encourage it uh, for those that are interested. Yeah. And, and these guys I've interviewed over the years, whether it's Navy SEALs or Army Rangers or Air Force PJs, they always have like a different origin story of why they joined. Sometimes it's the kid who was picked yeah. on and, and needed to prove himself. Or sometimes it's a lot of guys who grow up in the South, especially they were out shooting as little kids and they were just great yeah. shots and they wanted to take that further and, and, and be the best of the best and prove it to themselves. I think everybody has just this different story of, of why they joined um but for your book did did simon and schuster and atria just like approach you after this whole incident happened and said hey we think you have a book in you is that how it went down no i mean i had, I had friends in the business and and they had reached out just to chat and, and be supportive and, and i you know i was very careful after i left the tr to to go radio sign like i wasn't i wasn't interested in i didn't speak publicly i didn't take interviews i had hundreds of requests to go speak and do that publicly but you know the military you know, at that point, I we were, I wanted all the focus to be on the sailors and taking care of the ship, and I wasn't interested in trying to to continue the narrative. And that's really not appropriate when you're still active duty. Sure. You know, in that situation, you want to let the military handle it as they would. And so I feel more comfortable now because, you know, a couple of years have passed, and I want to make sure you know people understand what I think is important as well. Um, but so, and through that process, I had a friend who who basically said, you know, he, he, we we were high school friends actually, and then. Um, couple, you know, a couple years after the TR or two years after the TR, he's like, Hey, you know, what do you think? You want to write some stuff? And I said, yeah, you know, now maybe now's the time because I'm, as I approached the end of my career and I'm looking back on the 30 years, I said, you know, I'd like to see if I, what I can put together. So I kind of started that journey and, and, uh, and bounced some stuff off. And then what you, the process is such that you, you write a proposal, right. And you write a full chapter or two and you kind of pitch it and then and then they farm it out to publishers and and simon schuster was great because right off the bat you know we connected and they said hey we really like this and we like the story we like the fact that it's not just a sensational moment of you know COVID history you're actually trying to talk about a lot more about your military experience and yeah so then we just start the process and then you so then you write a chapter and you send it to them and you kind of bounce along the way and, and that's just this collaborative process over the course of you know a year or two to get to what ends up being a final product. And uh, and they've been great. I mean, Atria Books, which is a subset of Simon Schuster, have been super supportive. Um, they obviously help with publicity, they help with marketing. And more importantly, I thought they just, they became a good good teammates through the process. And I could pick up the phone and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, I'm thinking about shifting. You know, they always had great answers and were super supportive. And uh, and I couldn't have been happier to pick them as, uh, as a publisher or, you know, or, or be you know, honored that I had, I had a couple that, 
were willing to pick it up, but they were the ones I think that made the most sense. I'm glad I chose them. If this becomes a massive success, because it just came out, you're out there, you're doing interviews, you're doing signings. Um, and you know, it's, it's a process of this book getting to be as big as as you're going to hopefully want it to be because when i think of like jack Carr when i first met him yeah it was a couple of years until he became jack Carr, a name that we all know so if this right. book is massively successful which uh, hopefully it will be and i think it should be uh, do you have another book in you is this something that you hope to continue doing or is this just your story you're going to end it here and, and go on to do something else and face new challenges um so I love the pro like I actually really enjoyed the process of writing and uh, and telling stories. I think I I could certainly have another book in me, but it might not be a book about my stories, right? What I'd like to do is is capture other people's stories. And you know, I, I've already kind of thought through like if I was lucky enough for this book to be successful and a chance to partner with Simon Schuster again, you know, I think there's something to be said. I mean, any good book has to have good characters and has to have a good storyline, right? It's you know, I'm not you know. I'm not Jack Carr. I love his books. I mean, that's a different kind of writing. You have to have a good storyline, good characters, sure. same thing. But even in nonfiction, you have to do the same thing as well. You have to have good characters, good stories. I would like to write a book about leadership and stories, you know, about people that I could go out and meet. Like I'd love to go embed with a team somewhere or, you know, or just, you know, maybe it's a micro on leadership type of style for, for a book and, uh, and kind of explore that a little bit. Cause I think that would be fascinating. I think there's so many people out there that you can learn from that, we tend to always focus on the high profile people and, and folks that are celebrities or CEOs, but you know, you and I know that, you know, you learn a lot about leadership from people that aren't CEOs or aren't, sure. you know, like, you know, professional basketball players, you learn a lot. You can learn a lot from people. They're just everyday people because they're just doing great work every day. And I'd like to figure out a way to capture that and share that in some way. Um, yeah. So that's my thought. I mean, I like nonprofit work. I, uh, it is exhausting and it's full time and, and maybe, you know, down the road, if I, I was lucky enough to have another book, I would pursue something along those lines. And then, and then be maybe less involved day-to-day -day stuff and in a nonprofit and, and, and more time to surf. I can't, I don't want to give up, give up this yeah, new. How, how <laughs> often are you surfing now? Especially with the, I'm sure this is a pretty hectic month with getting the book out there. Yeah, hopefully you enjoy it, but doing interviews yeah. like these, it's part of the process. Yeah. Are you still finding time to surf or is this one of these months that we spoke about earlier where you kind of got to buckle down and you're going to yeah. have to put some stuff on hold? Is that how it is? A little bit of buckle down. Yeah. Just because of the travel and we were in New York earlier this week and uh, now we're up in the Bay Area and I, we go back to San Diego tomorrow. Um, I, I do. I try to get out once a week. Like that's at a minimum. I get out once a week. I feel like at least I'm not. It's not like, you know, it's like skiing. For people that ski, if you only ski once a year, it takes to the end of that day till you feel like you're comfortable again. And surfing, I just like getting out. If I, if I surf once a week, I feel like I can maintain that that level of balance that I need. Um, the weather's been not you know, it hasn't been fabulous. So that's been my excuse to not always be in the water. Uh, <laughs> it'll here. be hard. I haven't had many beach days in New York yet. Yeah. Like talk to me in July and August. Um, you know, if, cause then it's when you're driving to work and you're looking out and you're watching the swells come in and the sun's out. Um, that's when it's going to get harder. So right now it's probably, you know, the blessing that the weather has been crappy and, and I can focus on this, but, but those days are ahead. No doubt. I'll, I'll have plenty of time to surf soon. And, and, uh, I, that I look forward to. And it, and it is, in a sense, right, a cool beach read, which you don't typically get from people of your caliber, because a lot of the, a lot of it is combat and door kicking. And that's not what this book is. No, this is a book, I think, just about, and you know, how, how to live a life that hopefully keeps you balanced. Um, I think that, that, you know, maybe makes you better as a person, 
I know it'll make you better as a leader. You know, I, I, there's things I learned, maybe some cases the hard way along throughout my career, but things that I like to now try to continue to practice along the way. And, and it was, yeah, it was fun to, to share them. I and I did, we actually had the first book signing last night. So it was fun in my, uh, my old high school auditorium with oh, wow. about 800 people, 800 people. So it was pretty fun to do that and then share stories and, um, and reconnect with friends I hadn't seen in you know, decades. So it was a fun, fun experience. That's excellent. Well, once again, uh, for the audience, the book is Surf When You Can, Lessons in Life, Loyalty, and Leadership from a Maverick Navy Captain, U.S. Navy Captain Brett Crozier. It's out now, so pick it up. Amazon, elsewhere, you know, hard hard copies are at bookstores where they still are. Uh, at Brett E. Crozier on Twitter, at surf.when.u.ken on Instagram, and then just surfwhenyoucan.com which has yeah. links to all that stuff. Um, but this has been great. I don't know if you're going to be back in New York at some point. It'd be great to do this in studio. Hopefully Chris will be on next time, but uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, any Anything else that you want to get out there before we wrap this up? Because I think it's been, it's been fun speaking with you and definitely uh, learning a lot about leadership and sometimes doing what's right, I think is the, is the main point that we had here today, at least, even when your career may be on the line, monetarily things might be on the line. You got to keep your integrity. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great chat today, Ian. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, it was it was a fun book to to write, um, and I hope that uh, people enjoy reading as much as I, you know, had fun writing it. And I think it's I think it's relatable to a broad audience. And even if you don't surf, but uh, but for those that don't surf, I encourage you to somehow find a way to do it at least once in your life. I think it's fun, and then, uh, you'll find some kind of inspiration. I guarantee it. Whether you stand up for the first day or the second day, but uh, I love it. Someday, Ian, we'll have to go surfing together. How about that? I, I would absolutely do it. With you, that'd be awesome, man. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, well, I look forward if, to that. If you're out here this way or I'm in California, I'm going to hold you to it. So Okay. Yeah, I look forward to that. And to the audience, I say, as you said earlier, get out to an air show if you've never done that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm get never going to get in one of those planes, but I just admiring from <laughs> afar. Awesome. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure, Ian. I really appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, thanks for talking about the book and, and uh, the military and, and all those things about life. Thanks so much. That's all for this episode of Battleline Podcast. But we're always posting new content on social media. Follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. That's an order. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes up every Tuesday. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, never quit.